Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that even though Moses went up on that mountain several thousand years ago, that, Lord, the applications to our lives today are so very clear. And, Father, I pray that just as he came down from that mountain, glowing in his face, glowing in the dark for you, I pray, Lord, that we would leave this place tonight so in love with you that we would radiate your love and your grace to a world that is so desperately in need of you. And Father, we know that without you we can do nothing. So Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher. And Lord, that by the power of your Spirit we would be receptive to your word. We thank you and praise and worship your name. We pray that you would be glorified tonight. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Last week in Exodus chapter 33, we saw the, what I called living in the presence of God. And we saw in the first part of it that there were consequences to sin. Remember that chapter 4 and chapter 32, uh, they had made the golden calf. Anybody who's ever seen the Ten Commandments knows what that's about, right? Moses goes up on the mountain, God gives him the law, and he comes back down after 40 days, and they had begun to murmur while he was up on the mountain, and they said, you know what, where's Moses? He's never going to come back. Now the Red Sea has already parted, God has already moved mightily, and already they're beginning to murmur because he's gone up on the mountain. God's voice had spoken from the mountain already to them. And instead of waiting with anticipation for the Lord, they went to Aaron, you know, the assistant pastor of Moses in a sense, and said to him, what are we going to do? Moses hasn't come down. And we know what happened. Aaron took all their gold jewelry and they, they threw it in and melted it. And, and then he, he molded it and pounded it into the shape of a golden calf. The scariest part about this story to me is that they had left Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, where the golden calf was one of the, the symbols of their deity. And here they are being delivered from bondage, going right back into the old sin. And then we saw in chapter 33 that, that after he came down from the mountain, that there was consequences to sin. And God said, I'm not going to travel with you guys anymore. Because of your sin, you've broken fellowship with me, and now I'm going to be tr you're going to have to go out. I'll go out and, and destroy your enemies for you, and I'll lead you into the land of promise, but you're going to have to go without me. And we saw that the children of Israel, even though they were in rebellion, they began to mourn and weep. And you know why? Because even if we're headed to the land of promise, and even if our enemies are going to be defeated, if God is not with us, it's a distasteful thing. It's a disaster. So then we saw that our own individual positions or fellowship with God, that every one of us is as close to God as we want to be. Let me say that one more time. Every one of you is as close to God as you truly want to be. You might say, oh, I really desire it, but your words are not what's key. It's your actions. And we're going to see that tonight. Moses met with the Lord outside, far away from the camp. If you guys remember that from last week. He pitched his tent far away from the camp because God said that he would not be in the midst of the people because of their sinfulness. So he pitched the tent far away from the camp, and it said that when Moses would go outside of the camp, that the Shekinah glory of God would fall upon the tent. And it said the men would rise up when they would see Moses going out to the tent, and they would stand in their own tent and worship. And you know what, it sounds like they were doing a wonderful thing, but the reality is that if, God, if, the, if Almighty God is 500 feet away, I'm not going to stay in my tent. I'm running to wherever the Lord is. I want to be in His presence. And these guys were fine with convenient Christianity, as I would call it, right? They were fine just hanging out in their house. They didn't want to have to make an effort to go draw near unto the Lord. Let me just chill right here. It's easier if I just sit here. You know, I could have church on TV. I could just hang out with the remote. Lord, I, you know, I, I want to go to heaven and I want all that stuff, but Lord, I don't want to make an effort. 
And then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He's a picture of Christ. And ultimately, fellowship was restored. And then lastly, we saw intimacy with God as Moses stood upon the rock and was being told that he was going to stand on the rock and the afterglow or the backside of the Lord would pass by. So tonight, we, be, we come to the place in Exodus 34 as Moses, in response to God's instruction within the tent, is going to go back, back up on top of the mountain. And due to Israel's wickedness, the glory of God had departed from the camp because of their idol worship, due to their fear and faithlessness, had resulted in broken fellowship with God. But tonight we're going to see Moses once again ascend up that mountain into the presence of God. And here's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see him come up and meet with the Lord. Then we're going to see God's glory being revealed through his attributes. We will then see Moses worship and intercede on behalf of the people. Then we're going to see God's desire to use each of us in a mighty way. And then lastly, we're going to see that we need to make God our priority, both with our time and with our possessions. And as we go through the text tonight, we're going to see that it will result in an intimate relationship with the Lord. And so here's what I titled the message tonight. It's got two titles. Well, here's my youth pastor title, Glowing in the Dark for Jesus. Amen? That's what a youth pastor would title it. The other one would be Reflecting the Sun. And in either case, it's the same thing, that why does the moon shine bright? Because it's a reflection of the sun. And when does the moon not shine bright when the world gets in the way. Amen? When the world gets in the way, then the moon doesn't shine as bright. And the same is true of us. When the world gets in the way, we no longer reflect the sun. And we're going to see that tonight. You can glow in the dark for Jesus. And I, I'm going to give you eight keys to reflecting the sun. And I don't want these to come out like they're things you need to work toward. But if you keep notes, I want you to see this as we go through the chapter, that these eight keys are right there in the text. So let's begin in verse 1 as Moses goes up to meet with the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Remember when Moses came down and he saw them partying? Remember that? They were drunken, they were out of control, they're they're bowing down to the golden calf. He took the tablets and he threw them down and broke them. And remember that he broke the law because they were breaking the law. He came down and he was so grieved in his heart that in righteous anger, he threw the tablets down and they broke into pieces. Then the Lord said, that, now I want you to come back up and I'm going to write on those tablets again the same thing that was written on those tablets that you broke before. Now a couple of things we need to see here. One, that God's law will never be done away with by the actions of men. He may have thrown the law down and broken it, but the law is still the law. The truth is still truth. And there's nothing that men can do to put it away. There's people that de- today that are trying to take the Ten Commandments down and throw it away. They don't want it in our classrooms. They don't want it in, you know, in our uh, justice halls. They don't want it in courtrooms. They want to get rid of it. But the law was, to, was given to reveal our shortcomings, our need for regeneration. Here's the reality, you guys. We don't need reformation. We need regeneration. And what does that mean, Pastor Dave? Those are big words. Reformation is man's attempt to somehow change my behavior so I will be pleasing before God. Let me reform the way that I live. Let me change my ways. And let me tell you right now, you can't change your ways enough to be pleasing in God's sight. You don't need reformation, you need regeneration. And that's what the law shows us. The Bible says that the law is a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. When you look at the law, you know what it shows you? It's a mirror. It shows you you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You know, the world says, I'm okay, you're okay, right? Isn't that what the world say? Hey, live and let live, man. It's all good, especially here in Santa Cruz. Hey, do what you want, man. It's all, yeah, whatever, dude. It's okay. No, it's not. 
I'm not okay and you're not okay. The world says esteem self, that man is inherently good. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says deny self and man is inherently wicked. There's none righteous, no, not one. We are desperate sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? We can't be good enough. We don't need to discover our inner child. We don't need to blame our problems on our parents. We need to repent and get right with Almighty God. And so the law was given to show them their need for a Savior. You guys need to be saved. You're, you're sinners in need of a Savior. Verse 2. So, he, so be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain and no man shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So Lord says, Moses, you come up to the mountain, but you must come up by yourself. Now we've talked about the fact that Moses throughout the Old Testament is a typology or a picture of who? Who remembers? Jesus. Who's the intercessor? Who's seated at the right hand of the Father right now? The Lord is. Who delivered the, the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt? Ultimately God did, but what was the tool that he used? He used Moses to deliver them out of bondage in Egypt. Egypt is a typology or a picture of the world. Bondage is a picture of sin, and they were delivered by the hand of Moses. You and I were in the bondage to sin of this world, and we were delivered by Jesus Christ. As Moses goes up to intercede on behalf of Israel, so the Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf right this very moment. Isn't it good to know that when you're going through temptation that the Lord is praying for you? Did you know that? He's praying for you, He's interceding for you because He loves you. That's the God that we serve. So Moses in the tent of meeting had been instructed by God, again, he would go up on the mountain, and he, this intercessor, would be faithful to do that. And again, it's also a picture of what every man and child will do one day. It says, present yourself to me. Do you all know that one day is coming when every single one of us will stand before Almighty God? Every one of you. And you know what? Your wife won't be with you, your husband won't be with you, your parents won't be with you, your teachers won't be with you, your pastor won't be with you in that sense of, Ultimately, we will stand before God for one-on-one -on -one judgment, and it's going to be, what have we done with Him? Now, here's the good news. There is one that will stand with you, and that one is Jesus Christ. Amen? He'll step up and say, this one's mine. Belongs to me. Because we're going to stand before Him, sinners in desperate need. But the Lord will be there to say, I paid for that. I paid for that person's sin. So either we pay it or he does. And so here we see, he says, you come up and present yourself to me. And each one of us will have that same thing happen in our lives. Only way we'll be able to stand in that great day of judgment, again, is if the, we're standing with the Lord. So look at verse 4. and We'll see the first key to glowing in the dark for Jesus, as I put it down. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first one. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now I love the fact that Moses rose early in the morning. You know, too often we get up during the day and we get going, doing what we're doing, and we wonder why our, lives, our, our whole day is a disaster. You know what? I believe that before my feet hit the ground, I need to be crying out to the Lord. Something I do every morning, and it seems bizarre to most people, but I say, yes, Lord, my two, first two words every morning. Why? I want, and I got it from Samuel, when Samuel was a little boy. It's yes, Lord. Why? Because the Lord is calling my name as I wake up, and I want to begin my day with Him. Begin it, spend it, and end it with the Lord. And, it, and here we see Moses rose early in the morning to go up and meet the Lord. He didn't sit around and say, well, let me go down to Starbucks first. Got to get a double latte, you know, and have a bagel. 
And after my bagel and a muffin or whatever I'm going to have, then maybe I'll go down and run a few errands. And if I have time in the middle of the day, then I'll go hang out with the Lord. He rose early in the morning, had one thing on his mind, that was hanging out with Almighty God. And you know what? When we wake up in the morning, we ought to have a one-track mind. Amen? Let's begin our day with the Lord. I promise you, you do this every day for one week and tell me your life's not different. You get up and you start your day in prayer and start your day in the Word. And you cry out and ask God to lead and guide and direct your path that day. And to, to, by the power of His Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and to allow you to have opportunities to share your faith with people. And to give you love towards the world around you. And I promise you, your life will be different. And so key number one is to rise up early in the morning and go and meet with God. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in His Word. If you want to, to impart our world, impact our world for the Lord, you need to begin the day with the Lord. Verse 5-7. through seven. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before Him and proclaimed... Now it's interesting to me that he had been promised, remember in the last chapter, that when he went up on the mountain that the Lord would hide him in the cleft of the rock and that his afterglow or his backside would pass by and he would see the afterglow of the Lord. Now it's interesting to me that as this presence of God comes by, what is revealed to him? The attributes of God. How do we know the glory of God? We see the attributes of God. We see who He is and what He does to know who our God is. Now in verse 5 there, if you have a, a good translation, the word LORD should be in all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in the Bible, the word is Yahweh, which is Y-H-W-H. No vowels. They took, the word, took it out. And the reason they did is they wanted to make the name of the LORD or of God a name that nobody could pronounce. Because it was only to be spoken once a year in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. They, were so, they revered God's name so much that when they transcribed the Old Testament, or when they transcribed the Bible, whenever they would write the name of the Lord, between each letter they would go through a cleansing ritual and then come back and put on their fresh clothes and write one more letter and go back through this cleansing ritual again because they had such reverence for the name of God. And sadly today we don't see any reverence for the name of God anymore. Amen? It's a cuss word. Nobody ever says, oh, Buddha. You ever notice that? But they take Jesus' name in vain all the time. They take the name of God in vain all the time. And we're to have reverence for His name. And give honor to His name. Because He has the name that is above every name. And so we see here it says, Lord. The word there is Yahweh. So we see here He says, Now the Lord, or Yahweh, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Now, as his afterglow passes by, he sees again what's being revealed to him are the attributes of God. So who is our God? What does it say here about our God? First of all, it says he's merciful. Now, what does it mean to be merciful? Merciful is not giving somebody something they deserve. I am so glad that our God is merciful. Amen? What do we deserve? What do we deserve? Hell. Oh, Pastor Dave, that's rough. I'm a pretty good person. I know Charles Manson. What are you talking about? Hell. You know what? God had one sin in heaven. He'd have earth part two. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. You can't have any sin in heaven. You've got earth all over again. And so, because of that, what do we deserve? We deserve to be separated from God, weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. But here's the good news. Our God is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. It says He's also gracious. What does grace mean? Remember, grace 
God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God giving us something we don't deserve. Where mercy is Him not giving us what we do deserve, grace is Him giving us something we don't deserve. Do we deserve heaven? No. But if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved to the glory of the Father, and will we get to go to heaven? The answer is yes. That's grace. It also says there that he is long-suffering. And I'm really glad that he's long-suffering because, boy, can you imagine if Almighty God was, had, a, had the temper of the average human being? We'd all be smoke, right? I mean, people paint God as this God up there with a lightning bolt in his hand just waiting for you to make a mistake. Well, that's not true because we'd all be piles of ashes a long time ago if that were true. God is a loving and a gracious and a, and a patient and a merciful God. That's the God that we serve. And so as this afterglow is passing by, it says there that the Lord spoke to Moses and said, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm long-suffering. It also says they're abounding in goodness and truth. You know what? Again, our God is not a God waiting for us to blow it. He's a God who is good. Do you know that every good and perfect gift comes from God? Every single one. There is nothing good unless it comes from God. That's why we're not good apart from God. Amen? Only through Him can we be made good. It says, abounding in goodness and truth. Who's the truth? Who's the truth? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Who said that? Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is truth. I think I told you guys a story before. I was at college out of Cabrillo, and I had a, a teacher who was blasting on about... Uh, just our philosophy teacher and going on and having to be a, a game that we had a game uh, it was a football day and I had my football jersey on that day and he said yeah and there's no such thing as absolute truth and he's just going off and if the tennis ball is really there and if I don't believe it's there and you do oh it's noise right and so he says now if anybody thinks there's truth stand up and I'll make a fool out of you right now and so being the kind of guy that I can be sometimes I raise my hand and he goes okay big dumb jock in the back stand on up and let me you know make it look like an idiot and I said, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus Christ is the truth. And I sat back down. And I thought, here it comes. He said nothing. He moved on. He didn't talk about it anymore. And praise the Lord for that. I was, well, okay, let's go. And here's the reality. It's a divine appointment. Always do it in love. But Jesus Christ is the truth. And it says as this afterglow is passing by, he saw that our God is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of truth, a God of kindness, a God of goodness. And you know what? Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says that Satan is a liar. So when we tell a lie, who are we being like? We're being Satan-like, right? We need to be Christ-like. So this, this God passes by him and he sees the glory of God and he sees who our God is, the God that we serve. And again, apart from him, there can be no truth. You try to give me truth and you try to give it to me apart from God's word, sorry, not going to work. You know, we can prove the Bible scientifically, archaeologically, historically, any way you want to. 66 books, 40 authors, three continents, three languages, over 1,500 years, one central theme, no contradictions. How's that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And you know what? That's the truth. And people are trying to find truth everywhere else. But I tell you, read the book. It's in the Bible. God will show it to us. Verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Now it's interesting there that he, that he as, as the truth, 
He is both a God of holiness who forgives, but he's also a God who judges sin. And the first word he uses there is iniquity. And if you look that word up, it means perverting the ways of the Lord. Iniquity is, is going contrary to the ways of the Lord. Then he says transgression. That word there means being in purposeful rebellion against God. I've made a decision to rebel against God. I've made a decision. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it anyway. Isn't that what they did when they made the golden calf? We know what God says, but we're going to do it anyway. And you know what? We've all been guilty of that in our lifetime. And lastly, a sin is missing the mark. The missing the mark that God has set. Now look at the rest of verse 7. And it says there, iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here's the reality, you guys. Sin has consequences. Does God forgive our sin if we ask Him? The answer is yes. But even if we've been forgiven, may there still be consequences? The answer is absolutely. And you know what? Though it's true that we can't, that that is true, we cannot blame others for our sin. You can't say it's my mom and dad's fault that I am the way that I am. I'm tired. You know what? I'm really tired of people making excuses for their sin, and I'm tired of when I do it myself. You know what? We, 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 we give things a disease name so it's not your fault anymore. Well, my, my grandfather was an alcoholic. My mom's an alcoholic, so I really had no choice. You know, no, you're a drunkard is what you are, and you're a sinner, and you need to be saved. Amen? And people go, oh man, Pastor Dave, that's just radical. Well, isn't it, you know what? I'm tired, we make, we make, oh, well, you know, I've got a, a sexual compulsion. Stop it. You're a fornicator. You're a sinner, right? Oh, well, it's just, we call perversion a, a, a lifestyle choice. We have all these names that we give to sin to try to dial it down and take the, the reality away from the fact that we choose to sin. You and I choose to sin every single time. Amen? Don't you choose to sin? I know I do. And you know what? The Lord's on the way. I'm getting ready to sin. The Lord's going, don't do that. Don't you hear that voice, right? And you just, I'm, you just go anyway, right? And the Lord, man, He loves us so much. Praise God that He is long-suffering. Praise God that He's a God that will forgive us because we choose to sin. There should be no excuses. We must take responsibility that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. But remember, too, that, that not only does, does that happen, but our sin does have an impact on our families and those we minister to. If I go out and commit adultery, I'm going to have an impact on my entire family. Right? Isn't that true? If I go out and I cheat on, on, uh, on, at work, or I lie at work, or I do something to, to pad my commissions, or I, I lie on my time card, or whatever, that's going to have an impact on my testimony at work. When I sin, it has consequences, and it brings harm to the name of the Lord first and foremost, but also stumbles the people around me. When I sin, it stumbles others, and that's what he's saying here in this verse, that it visits to the third and the fourth generation. So key number two, key number one, was rising early to be with the Lord. And key number two is a heart of repentance over sin. Keeping short accounts with God. When I blow it, I need to repent right now. Verse 8 and 9. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Do you notice what the result is when he hears about the greatness of God? What happens when he sees the attributes of the Lord? What does he do? What does it drive him to do? Worship. 
You know what? When I see people who don't worship, it tells me that you have not had intimacy with the Lord. Because if you draw near to God and you have an intimate relationship with Him and you fall in love with Him, you can't help but worship. You'll be worshiping walking down the grocery store aisle. Amen? You won't have even to be in church on Sunday. You'll be worshiping in your car. Why? Because He's worthy to be worshiped and to be praised. We love the Lord, and it's great to worship. Man, I love to worship. And you know what? He's worthy to be worshiped. And Moses, the backside, the afterglow of God goes by him, and he sees the attributes of God, and he hears the Lord speak to him about his goodness and his mercy and his grace. And what does it do? It drives him to a place of worship. And so we see here that the third key is a heart to worship. You know what? He beheld his glory. And again, when we see His glory, it should bring us to that place. A heart that worships. Verse 9. Then He said, If now I have found grace in Your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as Your inheritance. Now I love this because Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel, but notice that he doesn't say, Lord, forgive them because they're wonderful people. You know, they're really sweet and good and wonderful and kind. He says, Lord, they're stiff-necked. They're a mess. Lord, forgive them, not because of their goodness, but because of Your grace. Lord, You forgive them because of Your attributes. Lord, I've seen Your goodness and Your grace and Your mercy. And Lord, I know that You can transform and touch their lives. Lord, You come because of Your grace, not because of the goodness of men. You know what? We should never come to God and ask for what we deserve. We talked about this a little while ago. You know, we don't come to God and say, Lord, I've done all these things for You. Now, you need to kick something down here. You know, that little, you know, hook me up now, right? And sometimes we can do that. We can think that God owes us something. God will never owe us anything. And we, you know what? We need to come to the Lord crying out, because of His goodness, not because of ours. Say, Lord, Your will be done. You're perfect. You're long-suffering. You're a wonderful God. And I'm a, I blow it, Lord. And I'm thankful that You love me anyway. I'm thankful that You know all of my sin and You still love me. You're such a great and an awesome God. Now we're going to see God, the, the fact that God desires to use each one of us in a mighty way. First, we're going to see Him warn us to rid ourselves of the things that take our eyes off of God. Look at verse 10. It says, and he said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not have been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you shall, seek the, you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So the Lord, right away, listens to Moses' intercession, and he responds and promises to do great and wonderful things with the people of Israel. Wait a minute, weren't they just making a golden calf? Yes, they were. Weren't they just in total rebellion to God? Absolutely. And he's still going to bless them. And Why? Because of repentance and the intercession of Moses. And because of that, he says, I'm going to do great and wonderful things with you guys. But pay attention. Look at the next six verses. Please pay attention to these. Because he's going to give them some things saying, I want to use you, but here's some things that you need to do. Because these things will keep you from being used for my kingdom. Verse 11, observe that I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. God follows his promise with a warning. 
Not to let the things of the world get in the way. I promise you this. With God's calling will come the enemy's attack every single time. When God calls somebody, the enemy's right there wanting to draw us away and trip us up and keep us from being used by God. He wants you to blow your testimony at work so you can't share your faith there anymore. He wants you to blow it in your marriage so it'll be destructive on your entire family. That's the enemy. And so right here the Lord says, look, be careful. I'm going to wipe out your enemies from before you, but you take heed that you don't fall into their trap. With God's calling again will come the enemy's attack, and the moon doesn't reflect the sun when the world gets in the way. And here's the good news. The enemy's already been defeated. Just like in this text here where he says, I'm going to go before you and wipe out your enemies. Just make sure that he says there in verse 12, take heed to yourself lest you make a covenant with them. Don't make a covenant. Don't be joined with the world. When our eyes, you know, I love this song and, and the newsboys redid it and I really love it. It's turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face and the things of the world will grow strangely dim light of His glory and grace. When your eyes are on God, your eyes to the world will be dim. But when your eyes are on the world, your eyes towards God will be extremely dim. When you're so focused on your career and making money and your relationships and all those kinds of things, then you're not going to have your eyes on the Lord. God is always shining, but sometimes we let the, the world get in the way so we're not a reflection for Him. Verse 13 through 16. Now look what it says here. But you shall destroy all their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Now I want you to see the progression. He says, drive out and destroy those things that may cause you to sin. And I want to encourage you, I want to start, this is for all of us, but I want, really want to talk to you dads that are here tonight. If you're a dad, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? And I want, to, want you to see this. First thing is that the altars and the images are in their midst. Then they become a focus of worship in verse 14. Then in 15, they make a covenant with them and begin to serve false gods. And before you know it, it takes their children away. So it starts off by them just letting the altars be in their presence. And he says, look, you don't let those altars be in your presence. You don't have things in your house or in your job site or where you are. They're going to cause you to stumble. If it's going to cause, you know, the Bible says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, He's not telling us to go around and maim ourselves. What he's saying is you do whatever it takes to keep from sinning. I told you the story before. I had a guy in Southern California. He calls me up and he's struggling with pornography on the internet. Just consuming his life. I'm 500 miles away. And he's telling me how it's destroying his marriage. It's a total disaster. He just can't stop doing it. So I, I click over on the phone. I call another buddy of mine that lives down the street. And I tell him to go down to his house and rip his computer out and take it home. So I click back over, I'm talking to him on the phone, someone knocks on the door, I go, oh, that's Tom, he's coming to take your computer. He goes, what? What? Uh, well, I need, no, you don't need your computer that bad, he's taking it. And you know what, let our right eye offend you, if our right eye offends you, pluck it out. And don't let those altars be in your house, and those things be in your house, they're going to get your eyes off of God. Key number four. Did I miss key number three? I gave it to you, that's right. Key number four is we must cleanse our lives and homes from anything that can take our eyes off of Jesus. What are some things that can do that? Movies. 
Our TVs, that window into hell in the corner of our living room. Right? The internet, music, alcohol, ungodly behavior towards your spouse. All those kinds of things can stumble your entire family. And you know what? There's, and I want to say this. I never want to make my conviction your conviction. Some people are convicted that if you've got a TV anywhere in your house, you're going to hell. That's not true. But here's the thing. You might allow hell into your house sometimes if you've got that thing there. You need to make sure that if you have a TV, that you really guard what you watch. And it's sad. TV's just going in the wrong direction, isn't it? They take God's name in vain on TV now. That's a disaster. You know, John Corson, a few years ago, I heard this on, at a pastor's conference. He was, he, he was uh, watching the Democratic Convention. Why, I don't know. But he was watching the Democratic Convention. And they went outside and they showed pictures of some protesters and there were a bunch of women there that didn't have tops on. And they showed it on TV. And Corson was sitting there with the son. And he was so angry, he ripped the cord of the TV out of the wall, went out to his garage and took a mole that you use to split wood and <laughs> on his TV and that was the end of it. Because he said, I'm not letting that altar be in my house. And you know what? It seems radical. And again, we're not doing it so God will love us. We're not doing it because, you know, be holier than thou and self-righteous. I don't have a TV. You know? Not like that. It's like if this is going to stumble my family, then it's got to go. You know, just the other night something happened that, man, I have to confess to you, made me very angry. We got a, a new computer for Christmas, and it gave us, automatically gave us this Internet service. And my kids have to have the Internet to do their homework. And I went in and put them all on the fullest and highest, you know, protection level. And my poor son comes walking out last night and says, Daddy, you need to come here. And I go in the room, and there's all this pornography up on our, on our thing where my son had clicked on something on NFL.com. And, and I was like, I was, and I just bought the computer like four days ago, you know, Christmas time. And I was this close to picking that thing up and hucking it out my back window. I was like, you know what? That is fried on my son's brain now. That made me so mad. I, I, that, that's gone. That's it. I don't care what we, that's out. We're done with it. No more internet. Sir. I don't care. What are we going to do for homework? I, we're going to call somebody. We're going to do something. I'm going to try to get Glory Works, and, and that's a Christian organization that keeps all that stuff out. But see, that stuff, we got to keep that out of our homes. And because what happens is if we don't keep it out of our homes, what, is, what happens? Then people start to, to you know, have relate, fellowship with it or covenant with it. And before you know it, they're following after it. And before you know it, it's impacting your family. An example I wrote down here is your kids are watching a TV show with inappropriate behavior of whatever kind. They might just be being disrespectful to the parents. You know, every TV show's got 13-year-olds kissing each other. By the way, Pastor Dave doesn't believe in that. Word up. Okay, I was a youth pastor a long time. And the reality is God's got one person for you, and you ain't getting married when you're 13, so you don't need to be courting nobody, and that's it, all right? So if you're one of my kids, you'd be dealing with that, right? So here's the thing. You can see that inappropriate behavior on TV over and over and over, and what happens is it desensitizes our children to sin. They look at it and say, well, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer does it, right? Or you know, whatever, Boy Meets World, they're, they're, they're doing on that show. And so what happens is they start to watch this stuff, and they start to say, well, it's okay because everybody else does it, and it desensitizes us to sin, and before you know it, your kids are following in that behavior. We need to man, tear down those idols. Whatever's in your house is going to stumble your family. It's not worth it. Become, they'll become desensitized to sin. They'll fall into that behavior. Dads, it starts with us. Let's cleanse our homes. Verse 17. And he says, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves, making a God into an image of my own creation. You know what? It must be the true and living God of the Bible. People try to make their own gods all the time. You know, well, my God would never do that. You ever heard that before? 
My God would say, no one, my God would never do that. Well, that's because your God doesn't exist. <laughs> right? It's either the God of the Bible that it doesn't exist. You got a little God that folds its arm, you put an orange in its lap. I'm sorry, that's, you know, that's a piece of rock, man. That ain't no God. Well, my God would never do that. Well, that's not, that doesn't exist. And so the reality is that we don't make golden images and pound them out. Can you imagine? The Bible says that a man will take a piece of wood, cut it in half, burn half of it in his fire, carve an idol out of the other half and bow down and worship it. Foolishness. And so who's, there's only one true and living God, and that's why we need to know this. Amen? He says he elevates his word above his name. And we need to know the word if we're going to know the God of the word. Amen? And so don't make molded images. So, this, so the key number five, we're going to move on to that. Making God the priority. Making God the priority. Pastor Dave may not get through this chapter. Let's see how we do. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib, which is March, April, you come out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you, if you have not redeemed him, you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Now, we need to make God the priority of our life. And the first thing he reminds him is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also known as what? Who remembers? Who remembers? Passover. Passover is when the angel of death passed over, when they had the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb on the top, both sides, and the bottom, picture of the cross. When the blood of the firstborn lamb was on the doorpost, then the angel of death would pass over and they would be delivered from sin. It was the thing that delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. And whenever they would remember that feast, they would take time to make God the priority. They would stop everything and observe the feast of unleavened bread to remember that God had delivered them out of bondage. And you know what? We need to make God the priority and take time to remember that He has rescued us from bondage. It says there to make God the priority with your possessions. He says the first of all of the, the womb. So every animal, when you had, a, you had animals and they gave birth to an animal, the first one that it gave birth to, you were to sacrifice to the Lord. Now in those days, that was your money. The more cattle you had, the richer you were. And so you would find out somebody's heart real quick because their animal would give birth to a foal and you'd say, oh man, hey, that, this is, that's worth a lot of money. And the Lord says, the first one you give to me. You give me the first fruits, not the leftovers. Oh, we had 500 horses. Well, let's give him, you know, the, oh, the five scraggly ones. That one's about to die anyway. Let's give him that one, right? And the Lord says, no, 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 no. You give the first fruits, the things that open the womb, you give them unto me. And you know what? It reveals our hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, the Bible says. It's interesting to me that, that the donkey is redeemed by the lamb. Who do you think the donkey is in that illustration? That'd be us. Right? We're a bunch of donkeys. Stubborn donkeys. Right? But the lamb's blood was shed to redeem the donkey. I like that. Who's the lamb? It's Jesus Christ. Picture Jesus in the Old Testament. Picture number 9,851. I don't know how many there are, but it's probably more than that. And we see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all over the Old Testament. And it says there at the end of verse uh, 20... None of you shall appear before me empty-handed. We come with a heart to give and to minister to each other. When you come to church on Sunday and Wednesday, you ought to come and say, Lord, I want you to minister to me, but Lord, how might I minister to the people there? 
Lord, give me a divine appointment. Maybe there's somebody there I want, I need prayer. Maybe someone there just needs a hug and an arm put around them. Maybe there's somebody there that needs some counsel or advice. Lord, use me. I want to come tonight to give to you, not just to have you only give to me. Verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. And you shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of the ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord and the Lord God of Israel. Now this is interesting. He says, give of the first fruits of your possessions. And by the way, you give where you're fed. You give to the place where you're being ministered to. If there's a radio program that ministers to you, give to it that you feel blessed by. Place you, you give there first, okay? Now, he says, give of your possessions, but give of your time. He said, you know what, on the Sabbath day, even during plowing season and harvest season, you make sure you take a day to set aside to rest and spend with me. Now, you've got to understand that harvest time and plowing time was the busiest time of the year. April 15th for the tax man, right? It's the busiest time of the year. And he said, you know what, you should never, ever be too busy for me. I have a guy I work with, and he said he was going to come to church on Christmas, right? And I said, hey, praise God. He lives right down the street. I've been talking to him about it. He goes, yeah, I'll be there no matter what. Well, what happened? Oh, dude, I was doing some work around my house. I just got too busy. Oh, too busy for God. Okay. Well, yeah, dude, I'm trying to sell my house. I'm going to get some good money out of it. I'm going to use it for my retirement. So you're worried about the next 30 years that you spend here on earth, but not the next billions and billions you're going to spend in eternity, right? I mean, we get so focused on the on our 401k plan, we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive. Amen? And where we spend eternity, I would say, kind of significant. Right? And so what happens is we get focused on storing up treasures on this earth, and we miss out on eternity. Then he also says there's three feasts. And I don't want to spend too much time, but each of these feasts was seven days long. And three times a year, you're going to come and leave everything you have, and you come spend time with me. You put away your job, you put away your stuff, you say, you know what, Lord, you're the priority. Hey, guess what? We've got a men's retreat coming up, a women's retreat coming up, a, a couple's retreat coming up, a youth retreat coming up. Good time for you to say, you know what, I'm going to put everything else aside, I'm not going to be too busy for God, and I'm going to go hang out with the Lord. I'm going to turn my phone off, and my pager off, and my beeper off, and my computer off. I'm not going to go to work, and I'm just going to go hang out with Jesus, and you watch and see what God does. God always moves mightily in retreats. Isn't it amazing how that works? You know why? No distractions. People aren't looking at their watch at 810 going, when's this guy going to shut up? Right? I mean, we're, we're, we're there, and we're like, dude, I'm here till Sunday. I got nowhere to go. And so because of that, we're just like, Lord, okay, minister to me. Not worried about paying the bills or what TV show's coming on at 9 that we might be late for, right? We're just worried, okay, Lord, minister to me. And three times a year, he says, you know what? You put everything aside. But look at this promise in verse 24. I really like this. For the Lord says, I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord, your God, three times in a year. He says, you know what? When you come up and spend time with me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to watch out for your property. I'm going to take care of that stuff. I'm going to take care of your business. I'm going to take care of everything that needs to be done. You come hang out with me, and I'm going to bless you. That's what verse 24 says. Put God first, and he'll protect and bless your family. Verse 25. You shall not offer blood or my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. Why don't you put leaven with blood? What is blood a picture of? Who's, whose blood was shed? Jesus. What's leaven? Sin. You never have leaven with blood because... The Savior was without sin. 
This is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, but all a picture of Christ. Verse 26. The first of your first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What in the world has that got to do with anything? But here's the thing. It says, the first thing it says is, you bring the first fruits to, your, to the house of the Lord. You give it to Him. Anybody who's been here more than once, you know that we're not about money at, at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. Where God guides, God provides. We don't even pass an offering. You know why? I don't want anybody to ever give out a compulsion. But we should give. Not because somebody told us to. Don't ever give because you feel guilty or some man told you to. And I don't, you know, you, you, again, you've been here any length of time, I don't get up here and talk about this. But you give because you love the Lord. Out of your first fruits. You say, Lord, 100% of what I have is yours. You use this for your kingdom. That's what we do. That's what God's called us to do. We give unto the Lord. And it says there that you, are, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but the Jews today will not eat meat and cheese in the same meal because of this verse. You go to Israel, everything's kosher. You can have a hamburger or a cheese sandwich, but you can't have a cheeseburger. You think I'm lying. I'm telling you the truth. Why is it? Because they say, well, if you eat the meat you might, and, the, and a milk product, you might be eating the meat with the mother's milk, so... You know, you've got to be careful not to eat those in the same meal. They have two sets of dishes, the meat dishes and the dairy dishes at home. And they cook all the meat stuff on the meat dishes and all the dairy stuff on the dairy dishes because they don't want to accidentally have a little bit of the meat left over or something that might touch the dairy. Is that what this verse is about? No. This verse is about worship of a fertility god when they would offer up a goat. It's got nothing to do. Can you see what happens when you take verses out of context? You go to McDonald's in Israel and you can't get a Big Mac. Because they took this verse out of context. No cheese, man. You can't have any. And it, it's totally out of context. That's why we read the whole counsel of God. It was a pagan fertility ritual and he said, don't get involved in it. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plow through here. We're going to finish. Verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread, nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. I love this, that he was there 40 days and 40 nights, and he didn't even eat. We talked about this on Sunday. Remember when they came out to the Lord, woman at the well, and they came out and said, Lord, we got you a, a Samaritan sandwich, right? You know, Lord, we got you a sidecar burger, whatever they had, and they brought it out to him and said, Lord, here's some food. And he goes, I have food of which you don't even know. Who brought him food? Where, what, what food is he? He's saying, look, I was out here doing the will of my father. And this woman's got in and brought the whole town out to me. And this is nourishing to me. You know what? You want to talk about a blessing. Moses is not worried about eating anything because he's hanging out with God. Amen? If you're in the presence of the Lord, you're not worried about food. He's not even worried about drinking anything. Why? Because he's in the presence of Almighty God. It's, you know what? God alone will sustain us. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. We find total satisfaction in Him alone. Key number six. And notice this. Desire the Word of God more than your necessary food. That's what it says in Job. He was so loving being in the presence of God that nothing else mattered, not even eating. You know, it's interesting that the Bible says desire the Word of God more than your necessary food. Can you imagine if you opened your Bible as much as you opened your refrigerator? What kind of spiritual giant would you be? Amen? You know what I mean? You know, every time you open the fridge, you open your Bible. Whoa. You'd be like having it memorized, forward, backward, side. You'd be reading it in Greek and Hebrew. I mean, you just have it nailed. But what happens is we desire to feed our belly more than our spirit, sadly. Let's finish up. 
Now, now it was when Moses came down from, the mount, from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. When, G, when he came down from the mountain, Moses was glowing in the dark. That's what it says. And do you know that he didn't even know that he was shining? You know why? Because it wasn't something that he made all these efforts to do. Look at me, I'm shining. You know, I, but, you know, it's no wonder I was hanging out with God, and, you know, me and God kind of got a relationship. And, you know, I did all this stuff for him, and he just kind of looks on me, and I put on a UV 85, you know, and Lord just really blessed me, and we got the Tropicana tan. No, he didn't do that. Instead, he was so in love with the Lord, and so blessed to be hanging out with the Lord, he came down, he was glowing, and he didn't even know it. You know why? Because it wasn't because of what he did that made him glow. It was the fact that he was just merely in the presence of Almighty God that he came down and he was shining brightly and everybody around him is going to say in the next verse is afraid. And you know what? You hang out with God and you fall in love with Him and you have radical faith and you be the person that gets up early in the morning and spends time in worship, someone who desires the Word of God more than their necessary food, someone who cleanses his house of idols, you're going to be glowing in dark for the Lord and people at work are going to be scared of you. They're going to go, dude, that guy's a Jesus freak. Word up. I like that. Who better to be a freak for than Jesus Christ? Amen? And you know what? People are going to go, dude, you're dial it down, man. You know, what? Uh, come on, man. You got to be, well, yeah, I was just talking about eternity. Why should I be excited about this, right? I just happened to have, my best friend created the universe. Why would I be excited about that when I could be excited about the 49er game? You know what I mean? We got our perspectives all messed up. He comes down, he's glowing, doesn't even know it because it's all God who made him glow. He was just reflecting the sun. He was being the moon. And he was shining brightly because he'd been in God's presence. Moses didn't even know it, and I like that. Verse 30 and 31, he says there, So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses and beheld his face shine, they were afraid to come near him. Dude, he's glowing. What is that all about? He threw the tablets down last time. We could be in some big trouble, right? I mean, so like, oh, right? And the whole, you know what? When people are in their sin, the last thing they want to do is be around people on fire for God. You ever notice that? I have some friends that won't call me. And if I don't hear from them for a couple months, I'm like, oh, that guy's messing up. Because he knows if he calls me, I'm like, so dude, what's up? How you doing, man? You dating anybody? Oh, is she saved? They don't like that. So they don't call you. But when they're doing really well, they, you know, they hang out with you. They call you. They want to spend time with you. And the same is true of me. When I'm blowing it, the last thing I want to do, you know, you don't want to be at the stop sign yelling at your wife and turn around and see your pastor in the car next to you. That's not good. Right? Oh! Right? That's not good. And so we see here that he comes down and, and they've been blowing it and he's glowing because he's been hanging out with the Lord and they're like, whoa. Fear. They're afraid. Righteous fear, verse 31. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them the commandment, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. Now here's the key number seven. Whatever God delivers to us, we need to minister to others. God had delivered the word to Moses, so what did he do? He got down from the mountain, he said, let me tell you everything that God told me. You know, God gave this to me, let me give it to you. When you spend intimate time with the Lord, it's amazing. Somebody will come up to you at work, and they'll need godly counsel, and you'll have been in the Word, and you'll say, oh, I know what you need. I was reading my Bible this morning. Here's what it says. Right? It's amazing how when you're in the Word, God gives, brings the Word to your mind so that you can minister to people. I love that. 
And so if we spend time in His presence, be a witness. Verse 33. And when Moses had finished speaking to them, he put a veil on his face. He was glowing so much, he had to put a veil on his face. Now it says, it's interesting, it says in 2 Corinthians that he put the veil on his face so that people would not see the fading away of the glory. Because you know what happened with his face? It got less and less bright the more and more time he was away from the Lord. The same thing happens in our lives, amen? You spend time in His presence, you're on fire for God, you're as close to God as you want to be, you guys, right? And then you, you know there's times you've been so close to the Lord, it's almost like being on heaven on earth. How many of you have ever experienced that before? Man, it's just, oh, this is incredible. And then some time goes by and you're like, well, wait a minute, what happened? Who moved? It wasn't God, it was me, right? You're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? I did. And so, you know what? Moses veiled his face because his face was getting less and less bright as time passed on. But look at verse 34. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak to him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever had been commanded. When he came before the Lord, the veil came off. And I like that because the reality is when we're standing before men, we can hide who we are before men, but we can never hide who we are before God. Amen? And he would remove the veil, man, he'd get recharged. And he'd come back down the mountain with the veil off and people would see that he was glowing. And so when he shared with them the truth of God's word, they knew that he had heard from the Lord. And then he put the veil back on his face. Verse 35. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that his skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So the glowing diminished. He spoke God's word, the people saw the glow, he gave authority to his words, and then he would veil his face. The worship team would come on up. Number eight was that we need to come again and again into the presence of God. People say, Pastor, why do we pray that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit? I've already prayed that before, why should I pray that again? Because we leak. Amen? And we need to be filled again and again and again. So let me give you the eight keys the worship team's setting up. Appreciate your patience tonight. Number one, rise early in the morning to meet with the Lord. Again, these aren't works. It's not a to-do list if I do all these things. But you know what? If we really desire to know God, these are things that say, man, Lord, I want to rise up early and begin my day with you. Have a heart of repentance over sin. When, you're, when you sin, drop to your knees and ask God to forgive you. Have a heart that worships. Cleanse our lives and homes from anything that can take our eyes off of Jesus. Make God the priority in our time and in our possessions. We should never be too busy for God. Number six, desire God's word more than our necessary food. Number seven, share God's word with those around us. What we receive from him is not just for us, it's for us to minister to others and come again and again into God's presence because we leak. You're as close to God as you want to be. How close do you want to be? How close do you want to be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it applies to our lives today. And Lord, I pray that we would be so near to you that we would glow in the dark for Jesus. Lord, Santa Cruz is so dark. It's so desperate for you. And Lord, we just cry out that, Lord, you bring revival here, but may it begin in our hearts first. And may you move mightily in this county. Father, begin in our homes. May we cleanse our homes, Father God, of things that would stumble our families. Lord, may we make you the priority in our lives, in our time, and, and, and Lord, in our, our finances. Lord, may we desire you more than our necessary food. Lord, may we make you first and foremost. And Lord, we just ask that you would just do a work in our hearts. May we go from this place closer to you than the way that we came. We ask all these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand up and worship.